Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. Well, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Glad that you have joined us, whether that's here in person or online. Uh, But before I I get into the message, I just wanted to address that I know for many of us, it's been a hard week uh, for those watching the news, uh, both internationally, uh, just seeing all the death and devastation happening in Palestine and and Israel. And and we just want to be mindful to be praying uh, for those that are there and just all of the different layers of tragedy um, that we find there. But I wanted to also bring our attention to a local scenario that requires some pause and prayer as well. We learned of Romy Vilsant, a fifth grader in East Flatbush at PS361. He had been the victim of bullying because of his Haitian accent and some of his classmates, they just returned back to classes over the last few weeks, had a dare, and one punched him in the back of his head. Uh, he began to complain of dizziness and was sent to the nurse, and a few hours later was pronounced dead at the age of 12 years old. Um, his family is obviously understandably devastated and uh, in deep grief. And I think this hit me in particular because I was someone who experienced bullying, as many of us probably have as, as a child. But to see something as, as, as heart-wrenching as this happened, I uh, just thought it was appropriate for us to pray. We know that there have been folks, uh, I mean, this school is just two miles away from where I live. And um, I know that there are folks in our congregation who were personally touched by this. So let's just pray right now for the family. Uh, Heavenly Father, We come before you with heavy hearts, Lord. Uh, There just seems to be sometimes such an unrelenting stream of bad news. And yet, God, we know that um, that is not the end of the story. Yet we pray for the family of Romy Vilsant, this just young, bright, young boy who was taken from us too soon. And we just ask God that you would comfort the family. I know many are trying to make arrangements uh, for burial in Haiti. And uh, we just ask that you would um, give them your peace and uh, your presence in this time. In Christ's name, amen. You know, I, I struggle with starting there because it's such already heaviness. And many times we come into you know, church to want to be uplifted and, and, and be given a sense of perspective and hope. And yet, I think that's the most appropriate place to start because for many of us, this has been a time where that's a struggle because of the news that we see or because of our own personal circumstances. It can be difficult to maintain a sense of hope when you see so much suffering, whether that's in East Flatbush or in East Jerusalem. And the reality is that there are oftentimes no easy answers, but there is prayer. 
And even that can sound like a, a hollow sentiment and even apathetic. And it can be when it's used to avoid hard conversations or actions, you know, with just thoughts and prayers, but nothing to actually do. But, but what I find very comforting is knowing that this isn't the first time that people have struggled and gone through what seemed to be the worst possible scenarios of life. And in fact, we find ourselves in just such a moment in John chapter 17, in this point of the story in the Gospel of John. Let me just rewind the tape to kind of get us to where we are. Because you see, Jesus has just finished washing the disciples' feet. We see him announce that one of them is going to betray him, that he's going to be arrested, tried, and executed, killed by the state for his own revolution. And even worse, they would learn and discover that this was an inside job, that one of them in the room was going to be responsible, and they did not know who it was going to be. Imagine that. For at least three years, these men have been Jesus' closest companions. They have lived and worked through many trials and many joys together, but now they have come to what Jesus would repeatedly refer to as the hour. This moment beats like a drum through the pages of the gospel, the hour, the hour, the hour, and now he says it's here. So we find ourselves in a moment of great injustice, taking the life of an innocent, deception by those we trust, confusion, and a sense of meaninglessness of it all. How could any good come from such a moment? The disciples would ask themselves. We see it in the road to Emmaus in Luke, you know, with the two disciples after the crucifixion. Like, we, we had all this hope. We, we thought he was the one. But I guess not. Peter would go back to fishing. It just seemed like utter despair. This moment is fraught with the type of despair that we've had glimpses of in 2020 and 2021. And we've often asked ourselves, what can we do about it? Well, Jesus shows us by example. And I want us to get a sense here that this is a key turning point in the, in the, in the gospel and what is known as the farewell discourse. This is it. This is the last words that the disciples hear John, Jesus utter in John's account before he is tried in a corrupt justice system and given a public death sentence. And there's so much here that we're going to actually break down this prayer over the next two Sundays. And today we're just going to focus on part one. And the focus is just really simple. What are the implications of the fact that Jesus prayed in this moment? Like right now, like of all the things that possibly one could do that he prayed. And not only did he pray, but he prayed for us. He prayed for you. What does that mean? Well, it turns out quite a lot. In light of the flow of thought here, I'm just going to read the first 11 verses as if the disciples would have heard it together. In verse 1, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, 
The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Think about that. This is eternal life. We're going to go there. But he continues, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested my name, your name, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In this time of crisis, Jesus models three things for us here. Lift your eyes to heaven. Remember you're in good hands. And seek greater glory. Well, first, lift your eyes to heaven. We, we see in the very first aspect of the, the prayer, it says, Jesus lifted his eyes to heaven and he said these things. And we know that as we read throughout the Gospels, that Jesus was a man that was committed to prayer. And when, when you think about it, like all the things that he had to do, I mean, you know, uh, tell people how to understand, how to know God, heal the sick, raise the dead, save the world. Three years. That's a pretty tight window of time. And yet in that time, what he saw was an indispensable part of the process was prayer. From the very beginning, even before he selected the disciples that he's now talking to and praying with, they, he started with prayer. In Luke six twelve, we see it says this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Before Jesus even selected his crew, his group, he prayed over it. It says, all night. This is a movement that began in prayer. You see, even after he does things like the miracles and the feeds the 5,000, and there's this huge personality that everybody wants to see and meet, and he sneaks away, and he steals away from them to get time alone with God. 
And here we are right here at the end of his life. The last few moments, the last words that he gets to say in the midst and among his disciples. And what he does is he prays and models for them how to enter into difficult situations. And the reason why that's so important is because I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I go through difficult situations, it feels like I'm all that's here. Like, it's like, God, are you around? Because you're not doing anything about it. Like, I, I feel alone. You ever feel that way? It, it kind of reminds me of um, overclass days. Now, fortunately, here in New York, over the last few days, we've had some beautiful, bright, sunny days. But y'all know about those overcast days? Like, those days with just thick clouds and it's just gloomy and, and doom-filled, and, and it's just, it, you know, it, there are even folks, many of us, at, at, it affects our mood. Like, we, we, we get up, and we just don't even want to get out of bed because the sky is just this gray, and, and it can just feel like there is no sun. Sun, like, that, where is that at? Because all I can see when I get out of bed is that gloomy, cloudy gray. And in our circumstances, in our situations, that's sometimes what it feels like. I'm here by myself. I'm alone. There is no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no tunnel. There's just gray. And prayer reminds us that all we see is not all that there is to be seen. Let me say that again. Prayer reminds us that all we see is not all that there is to be seen. And the interesting thing is it's not simply the lack of brightness that causes there to be despair. It's the fact that we can't see the sun because there's another event that happens in the sky every once in a while, much less frequently than a cloudy day. In fact, it usually only happens in a certain place every couple hundred years. But it also darkens the sky. It's called an eclipse. We had one of these a couple years ago. And a solar eclipse in particular is a very unique phenomenon. You see, a solar eclipse only can, what it does, what happens and what transpires is that it's a time in which the moon, the sun, and the earth are in complete alignment. And so that the moon actually is center at the sun and it blocks out, it frames itself right center, central to the sun. And so it causes this sense of darkness on the earth, but the difference between an eclipse and a cloudy day is because the moon is smaller than the sun that you still see that there's a sun that is happening behind the moon. And in fact, people get excited to see a solar eclipse. They go outside, they want to take pictures, and they want to experience this phenomenon because it's a reminder of the fact that, that there's still something, even though it's dark, that the darkness is not all that there is to it. Do you understand that when Jesus, what he accomplished on the cross is he, it was a reminder that heaven and earth actually collided and combined. It's a reminder that we have a world and a reality that's transcended. Like a solar eclipse reminds us that, yo, I'm in a universe. Like there's other planets and, and things that are here. And when there's a perfect alignment, I can see with clarity. And, and this is what prayer does. Prayer gets our world in alignment with the S-O-N, sun. It, it reminds us that all that, that, that even what we're experiencing and even the darkness around us is not all that there is to it, that there is light. 
even if it's obscured, even if it's blocked out, that there is like, there is something else beyond. And, and, and that grounds me and that roots me in the sense of the fact that this is what prayer does. Prayer invites God to interrupt our circumstances. It, it, it invites God in to say, I want transcendence, I want eternity to invade time. I want your will to invade mine. Some of us don't like interruptions, though. So interruptions can be pretty annoying. I'm particularly upset when I'm doing something like important on my, on my phone or, you know what I mean, I'm using it or watching something, and then I see and it says scam likely. But see, before there was the scam likely one, you didn't know, and the, and, and, and the telemarketers got real fancy, so they would use phone numbers that were like maybe the same area code as yours or, or other things, so you would pick up, and then you pick up, and you hear that pause. And then they're like, yo, uh, you know, your, your auto warranty is expired. You're like, I don't even have a car, what are you talking about? And then I hate those interruptions, but then there are those other types of interruptions, the good kind. I've told this story before, but it was just such a, a pivotal moment that I remember when my family and I, we had moved to Indiana to do ministry out there, and we had one car when we had moved there, which was perfectly fine for the situation that we were in in our previous place of residence. But in this new situation, we, were gonna, we had two different schedules, and our daughter's school was in a different part of the city, so we we're like driving up, kind of thinking through all this during the summer, like, yo, we, we're going to need another car. And we're missionaries, and we don't have money like that, so we're going to need a car, and we're going to need someone to give us a car. We're going to have to pray that God would just put it on somebody's heart to give us a car. So we park. We're a little bit late to a meeting. So I'm walking through the door, and this guy, in a, he says, hey, uh, can I talk to you? I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of trying to go to this meeting. He's like, yeah, just to take a moment. You see... One of my ministry partners is moving, and, and, and he has this car, and the Lord put it on me on your, to ask you in particular if you needed this. And I was like, oh, yes, that's the type of interruption I'm talking about. In that sense, God didn't even give me a chance to really pray about it for a while. He just, like, just downloaded it immediately from heaven and gave. And those are, that's what prayer invites us to. It invites God to say, God, please interrupt, intervene. And the reality is what I want us to understand is when we think about the cloudiness that blocks out and obscures the sun, that it's a prayer is a conversation that reminds us that God is still present and involved. You see, the Christian life is a conversation. It's a series. This is why in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, pray without ceasing, because after the new birth, that's when the conversation starts. Oh, I have something to say about your life. And oh, I have something to, to reveal to you about what I really want you to do. And all these aspects come from the conversation of prayer. So it's really essential why Jesus models in his last words to them a prayer. But notice he also says, you know, Holy Father. And he refers to God as holy. And that's essential to this point because you see, when he refers to God as holy and his father as righteous, there's a, uh, what they call a, a cognate word for righteous. The same word that is translated righteous is translated justice in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
and depending on the context, that's only what depends on and, and determines uh, the, the context of what translators decide, which one to use. But it's the same word. It's the same concept. So God referring, Jesus referring to his father as righteous is the same as him referring to him as just. And that's so meaningful because it's like this, this whole justice conversa- conversation is like, oh, I've been there. Like, that's who I am. Like, I, we're not jumping on this because it's a trend. It's, it's, it's how I ordered the universe. And there's a sense of personal responsibility that God takes on making sure that in the end, that justice will prevail. And that's good news. And it's good news when I feel overwhelmed from my situation and my circumstance and I can forget that that is real. But there's another piece that's so important about this. If you remember the context of John 17, Jesus had just said, look, this is what's going to happen, y'all. One of you are going to betray me. All of you are going to scatter and run away from me. But it's all good. You're going to be strengthened. You're going to come back and then, you know, I'll be out there. And here's the thing that's so important and key. You know, when I first started as a believer, I thought that like, even before I became a Christian, I had this kind of notion of my mind is like God, like when I did something wrong, that there needed to be like a cooling off period, right? So like I would sin and then be like, you know, I'm just going to keep my distance. You know what I mean? Like not really be around, not, you know, because in case you might just want to strike me and be, and so I thought that what the right thing to do, what the righteous thing to do was just to be far from God so that I could like show proper sense of repentance and sadness. And then after a while, say, okay, I'm sorry. And can we talk again so that he could cool down his anger? But the reality, what this shows us that the prayer at this time is that Jesus's response, his posture to our struggle is not condemnation, but it's intercession. Think about that. He doesn't say, yo, y'all going to struggle, and you know what? I'm judging you for that, and I don't want you even want y'all to be my disciples anymore. Just, just go home, because I see that you're going to just turn around, and Peter, you're going to deny me three times after all we've been through. Just, just, just bye. He doesn't do that, and what that means for us is that when we struggle, the answer isn't stay far away. It's actually get closer. The answer isn't, uh, you know, just feel guilty and gloomy and, and far apart. The answer is press in all the more because prayer is that moment of interaction with God is when we start to get the awareness and the clarity of the fact that there's grace and mercy at the cross. That was the point of the whole process. That's why Paul can say with conviction that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I need to remember that when I'm struggling, that Jesus, what, what I'm trying to say is God's posture towards you, his primary reaction to you is grace, not judgment. So the question is, do you have that posture toward yourself? Because it's not, God isn't the one that's like, yeah, you know, he messed up, she messed up, so I'm, I'm, I'm not messing with her for the next couple of days. That's not, that's not his posture, it's come, it's come. So where is that coming from then? The second part that's so amazing about this is that Jesus prays for you, which is not something I don't think we think about a whole lot. Like in this passage, Jesus prays for you. Like oftentimes we think about praying to Jesus, but Jesus is praying for us. How does that work? Well, in verse 20, look at what it says. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
Well, let's replay the tape. Like, how effective do you think Jesus' prayer life is? Like, like in a percentage basis, right? Like, like if I had to think about my percentage, like, you know, it's like a, like a field goal percentage. Like, I might be like hovering around 30%, 20%. I don't know. John chapter 1. The word spoke reality into existence. God said, let there be, and there was. Okay, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't quite get it to you. Okay, how about um, when he says, he sees a, a demonic man possessed, and he rebukes the evil spirit and says, come out, and it comes out of his body. Oh, that doesn't do it. There was a centurion, right? There was this Roman soldier who was really like concerned about his daughter being sick. And he came up to Jesus and said, look, all I need for you, I don't even need you to come and touch and do all that. Just say the word. And Jesus said, go, she's healed. And that was it. All it took was a word. Oh, that's still, that don't impress y'all, huh? Dag, okay. A man dead for four days named Lazarus. And all he says is, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came from. There is no instance where you see within the scriptures where Jesus says something and the word doesn't actually return back what exactly what he says. So when he prays for us, that means it's already done. All right, y'all still not impressed. All right, all right, all right. In Hebrews chapter 5, Hebrews is a whole passage that's, that's that, a book that's really laying out Jesus' role as an intercessor for us. It says in chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Oh, I wish I had time to break this down. So first of all, it says here that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Supplications is just a long word for requests. With loud cries and tears. Oh, Jesus went in in his prayer closet for you. By name, thinking of you, laboring over you. And he says he was crying out to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Now, the first time I heard that, I was like, mm, was he heard though? Because he said who was able to save him from death, but he wasn't saved from death. Like, he died. So how, did he really get hurt, like hurt? But then when you continue on in the passage, it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all believers. Woo, okay. This will change your entire perspective on prayer. This is saying that Jesus, the one who knew everything, who, who, who was all knowledgeable, that he learned something. How is that possible? Well, you see, obedience is the type of thing that you can only learn through experience. See, you haven't learned obedience. If you agree with everything that the person in authority tells you what to do, then you ain't learned obedience yet because you're just agreeing with yourself through the voice of somebody else. But the minute that someone who is in a position of authority over you tells you to do something that you don't want to do, that's when you learn obedience. And so here's the point is that Jesus... Learned obedience through what he suffered. Well, what do we know? We know that in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it's possible to let this cup pass before you, 
Now, if that was the end of the prayer, then we could say, well, his prayer wasn't answered. But he finishes up by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so he submits his desire to the father's desire and which puts him in perfect alignment. And he learned that obedience and therefore became a source of salvation, eternal salvation for all who believe. What's the point? Here's the takeaway for us. Sometimes the thing that we are struggling with, the thing that feels like that dark cloud, God is using it to teach us obedience. Will you believe me? Will you trust me when you don't understand? Will you trust me when you don't agree? When you don't like what you see around you in the world, when it feels like it's just utter chaos, can you trust me that I'm still there? That's how you learn obedience, through what you suffer. Not when everything is perfect, but when you are struggling because the reality is chaos all around us. But that's nothing new. You know, one of the things that I, I enjoy, you ever like, really like commercials when you don't have any intention on buying the product? But you just like watching the commercials, right? So I'm like this, especially, you know, since moving to New York, I got rid of that car that I got for free. <laughs> like, I didn't need it anymore because it's like, look, this alternate street side parking is just, nah, this, is, this ain't where it's at. I'm just going to take the subway. But I still enjoy watching the commercials, and car commercials are pretty inventive, I guess in part because it's hard to get people excited about something like car insurance. But there was a series in particular, one that really drew me, where it was this dude, they personified all the bad things that could happen in someone's life by this dude named Mayhem. And in the commercial, Mayhem would take on forms and different things. Mayhem would be a child. Mayhem would be a banner of a sports team that would cover the car. And one time in particular, Mayhem was a teenage girl who was driving in a car and being distracted because her, bus, bus, her, her bestie was texting her that she had hooked up with the girl who was driving the car's crush. And when she saw that the bestie was being, you know, she got distracted and, and turned into the car who would be you as the potential customer. And so it's like mayhem is everywhere, all around you, all, every, all, so, but, and if that was the end of the commercial, that would be pretty depressing. But mayhem isn't the only thing that's everywhere. We also have Mr. President himself, Dennis Habers. Y'all remember, some of y'all remember that from 24. And in one commercial in particular, he's literally sitting in the middle of all the chaos. There's cars crashing, and he's in the street, and he's just chilling in a nice little couch, legs folded, completely at ease. And he's explaining the fact that because of your, if you get coverage with Allstate, then you have actual coverage for any of these potential situations that could happen. And then he asks the question with that deep baritone voice. Are you in good hands? <laughs> and as I watch that and as I think about that, I'm like, this is what Jesus is saying Why, when he's praying. This is the implications of the fact that he prayed for us. He's saying, you're covered. Oh, it don't matter what kind of mayhem comes into your life. It don't matter what kind of situation, you're covered. You're covered because we have a policy that covers every single situation that could occur. What could separate us from the love of God? Could life or death, no. Angels or demons, uh-uh. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Are you in good hands? That's what we have at our disposal. That's what we have access to. The fact that Jesus prayed for us, 
It means that life, and no matter what happens, is not happenstance, but that we actually have connection with the one who can control it all. And nothing is uncovered. No situation. Unfortunately, unlike with Allstate, we ain't got to pay for it. It's been paid already. All we got to do is trust and believe. Well, third and last principle here that we can learn is seek greater glory. How do we weather these storms? How do we see past the clouds? In verse 15, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. In verse 22, he would go on in this prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, this phrase, the world, was one of those things that I was really confused about when I became a Christian. We'd be like, you know, because, you know, the world, man, they'd be tripping. I'm like, aren't we in the world? How, what do you mean, the world? Like, where they at? <laughs> and I was confused about it because I, I, in the Greek, there's two different understandings we have of the, the term world that we see in the Bible, and depending on the context, it's the same Greek word, cosmos, but it's, it's, it can mean different things. It could just mean like the common domain of human existence. And even in this chapter, in verse 13, it's referred to as that. But it could also mean a metaphor for everything that opposes God. In other words, the world system. You see, in this life, you know, there's this cosmic battle between good and evil, and, and that just like God is organized, so is Satan is organized too. This is part of the reason why the whole, I don't, I'm not a fan of organized religion. I'm like, well, guess what? You got to organize an enemy and he's organizing all his forces against you. So you better have some organization about how you're going to combat that, right? So, you know, but there we go. But I understand. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, so this is in the, John's epistle, not in the gospel this is how he breaks down the world, because there's probably not a category in which Christians have kind of misrepresented and misinterpreted worldliness. Worldliness has meant everything from lipstick to uh, music with a beat behind it, drums, worldly, depending on traditions that you might come out. It can mean it. And, and so people have misunderstood that to try to locate it and try to try to make it into a certain thing but but right there in the scripture they give us a description look at what John says do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So right here, John is making a contrast between loving God, the Father, and loving the world. And what he describes as the world, he's like, look, this is not a certain location. This is not a certain um, music style. This is not a certain fashion style, but this is the three things that can be boiled down to, worldliness, right? Worldliness can be de de determined as desires of the flesh, Having an orientation that essentially prioritizes my wants and my desires above anything and anyone else, including God. That's worldliness. That's what he's saying. That, that's worldly, right? 
Then he says, the desires of the eyes. And at first you might think, well, isn't that the same thing as just wanting anything for your flesh? But I remember my mom used to say, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. When I would try to take on too much on my plate before and I couldn't eat it all. And what it means is that there's a certain orientation of, of greed. There's a certain orientation of life that says, she says, I want what I can't have. I'm envious of those that have things that I don't. And he says, that is worldliness too. And then the last one is just the pride of life. That's just the sense of arrogance, the sense of esteem, the sense of I'm building life around what is most meaningful to me. And in all these things, it's saying this is worldliness and you cannot love those things and love God at the same time. Father, keep them from the world. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. And because of that, the world can end up hating you because you're not in lock in step with the things that they want to do. And people can sometimes feel guilty. You ain't even do nothing. You just in the break room with everybody else, and then they talking and saying stuff that they shouldn't say, and then they see you come around and be like, okay, I'm sorry. Look, I, and you're like, what? I didn't do nothing. But it's the presence and the reality that there's a certain type of different kingdom that you can represent that causes sometimes people to get a little tight around you. And I used to feel pretty frustrated about that. I just want to be accepted and, and want to be part of the in-group. And, and God was telling me, like, look, there's, there's kind of like two different kingdoms, and sometimes you can't, you're just going to be perceived a certain way and received a certain way simply because of your identification with me. Are you okay with that? Because the difference is about timing of long term and short term. So, what do I mean by that? <laughs> there was an experiment done called the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment a few years ago. And the experiment was pretty simple. They gave a child, they put them in a room, and they give the child two choices. I can give you a marshmallow now, and you can eat the marshmallow. Or I can come back in 15 minutes, and you'll get two marshmallows. So they close the door. And the kid be looking at the marshmallow like... And it's funny because they videotaped this, and it's hilarious because you see the kid, like, look in, and they, then they, like, touch the marshmallow. <laughs> One kid, they just, like, lick the top and try to taste it at first. But in the end, most of them smashed the entire marshmallow. They just couldn't wait. But what they found was that the kids who were willing to wait, they actually did a follow-up study like 20 years later, and the kids who were willing to wait, that they actually were surprised to see they had better life outcomes. They had better educational attainment. They were healthier. There was something about the propensity toward delayed gratification that caused them to actually realize, wait, it's better for me not to get exactly what I want right now and satisfy my flesh for later experiences. But see, that's not really the perfect illustration to talk about what it is to do in the world. If we were to think about this in the world, take that same little girl and let's put her in a football stadium where she was part of the opposing fan base and have everyone screaming, marshmallows, 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 and everybody wanting to eat the marshmallows, and you'd be the only one that's trying to sit there and wait for two. <laughs> that's what it can feel like being in the world and not of the world. The world system glorifies our flesh. Following Jesus glorifies our spirit. That's the contrast. And there's that war between the flesh and the spirit. 
that we have to choose. So the question is, will I choose instant gratification or eternal gratification? Jesus prays, Father, keep them. Keep them from the evil one. I don't ask, and he didn't want us to be out of the world because he wanted to give the world examples, shining lights, foretaste of the real type of life where real life comes from so that they can experience it, taste it, touch it, and then want for him. That's why the very thing that I was feeling uncomfortable about, about being different from the crowd, is the very thing that he sent me in those places to do so people could see another option, so I could be that type of eclipse of light shining beyond the darkness Not glorifying myself, but glorifying the Savior. And that's where this aspect of glory comes from. This idea that we can say seek greater glory. Because the funny thing in the passage is that we see that Jesus doesn't have a problem with us seeking glory. The problem is what is the type of glory that you seek? Because you see, we can see the moon, not because the moon shines its glory, but because it reflects the light from the sun. And that's what gives the moon its glory. And as long as the moon can remember that, it's in its right place, merely reflecting light from the sun. And that's our challenge. That's our goal. That's our mission. Think about this for a second. This is how the New Bible Dictionary puts it. The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is still to be seen and reflected by the church. You see, when when Moses spent time with God on the mountain... It recorded that when he came back down from the mountain, his face shone with light, so much so that they kind of freaked him. It freaked people out, and he put a little hood over himself so that they wouldn't get so freaked out. When we spend time with God and, and, and get into that quiet place and get into our prayer closet, then we actually start to reflect his light to the world. And that's why we talk to Jesus, and that's why Jesus models this prayer for us. And that prayer is ultimately your will be done. I'm going to say this, then I'm out. So we get this aspect of glory sometimes, of, of, of the full sense of the significance of delayed gratification and of being part of something bigger than us. This is the time of year, actually, that we usually do such things in May. And I know with the pandemic, many of us haven't been able to have the type of gatherings when people celebrate milestones as we you know, normally would do. But especially in certain communities, when a graduation rolls around, you see a whole lot of people immersed in glory. And actually, you hear what is often what I would call the nine most useless words in the English language. The nine most useless, pointless words in the English language. Please hold your applause until all names have been called. Why do they even say it? They must just simply accept the fact that there are some of us that come from a heritage of celebration that will not refrain, but that when that name gets called across the stage, they get flashbacks of all the moments of delayed gratification. They get flashbacks of all the trips to Little League and all the times of study breaks and all the things that they did, and they call that name, and it'd be the the last name Adams, right? Alphabetical order, first person. Letitia Adams. That's my baby! Ah, ah. And, it's, and when you think about it, why are they so excited? They're not the ones who graduated, but they're sharing in the glory of the one who did. 
And so that's what we get when we see Jesus on the cross and resurrected. We recognize that we get to share in the glory of the one who overcame. And by association with that, we get to participate. And sometimes, even when the world is beating us up, we just got to remember whose name is on the degree and whose name we get to be a part of as a result of that process. Our names have been written in the book. Graduation season is coming. And when your name is called, you best believe that the angels ain't waiting until every name gets called. As soon as your name comes up, they're going to be making noise like it's crazy. And that's why we wait. But I want to just close out with this. I mentioned that Jesus was praying for us, but because of the pronouns that are in there in the text where he's talking to the Father, we miss some of the, the impact of it. So I rewrote this, and I want you to just close your eyes as if Jesus was saying these words to you. So it's the same passage, just to you. I have manifested the Father's name to you, whom he gave me out of the world. You were his, and he gave you to me, and you have kept his word. Now you know that everything that the Father has given me is from him. For I have given you the words that he gave me, and you have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from him, and you have believed that he sent me. I am praying for you. I am not praying for the world, but for you whom the Father has given me, for you are his. All mine are his, and his are mine, and I am glorified in you. And I am no longer in the world, but you are in the world, and I am coming to him. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.